We're recording. In LA, almost all of us who can stay home are some are, are quarantined. Six feet. All right, here we go. Matters. Welcome to Corn Stream. I'm your host, Bob Christian. I am in a very sunny Los Angeles today, which is nice because it's been uh, really cloudy, which makes being inside feel even more claustrophobic. Uh, today, I'm here with, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Aaron Pont. I am currently in Los Angeles, more specifically, Los Feliz. All right, so Cornstream is a show about the top five things to watch during everybody's quarantine that seems to every day grow state by state, except for today, actually. I have yet to see any new quarantine uh, notifications today, so that might be a harbinger of things to come. Uh, so each episode, I ask someone whose opinion and taste I appreciate and who I usually talk about movies with to send us their top five things to binge, which is either shows, movies, podcasts, uh, things like that. And we're going to talk about what that list is comprised of. So Aaron, before we get into what your quarantine life is like, what makes a good binge show or a good binge movie to you right now? You know, televisions change, right? It used to be set up like, oh my God, I can't wait till next week to see what happens on The Sopranos. And now I think if it's not binging, like I know for me now, I binge everything. So I'm not watching Homeland right now because I'm going to wait till every episode airs and then just watch it in a week. I do. You know, I'm the exact same way. If there's a show that uh, that I think I'm going to be interested in, I'll wait till the whole show runs because I'm not interested in waiting week to week. Totally. The only time I make an exception is if I think someone's going to talk to me about it and ruin the experience of watching the show in several months. But you, you can block that. The same with the, if you haven't seen a movie, you can just block that. But I, I want to tell a funny story about binging. 20 years ago, I lived in New York City. And by chance, I met a, a very arty couple from the Upper East Side. And they invited me to their home for dinner. And I went to their house and they're showing me around their apartment on the Upper East Side. And we were talking about the West Wing. And she said, don't say anything. I haven't watched the new season. And in their bedroom was a stack of videotapes labeled each episode of the new season of West Wing. And then they had like four other shows. And I'm like, what is this? And she's like, oh, we tape every show during the season and then we watch it all at once. And I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And she was binging. They were binging 20 years ago. I think they, they were on to something that we yet all had to discover. Totally. And it's a much better way to enjoy television. But television totally. is different now anyway. Like if you talk about Sopranos, that was really one of the first shows, one of the early shows that's part of this golden era of television where story arcs and everything run season to season, episode to episode, things carry over. It's not uh, all in one hour or half hour mm -hmm. drama. Well, their tagline said it. It's not TV, it's HBO. Which uh, kind of leads us into your list. It's very HBO heavy. Mm -hmm. uh, you sent me your list, and that's the first no pattern I noticed looking at it, is it's kind of a, a deep... I want to go with gritty, but I don't think it's all quite gritty. It's, like, it's a rich, thick, drama-based list. It's, it's heavy. Your list is really heavy of things to watch, so I'm excited to get into it. Uh, but before we jump into all that... Let's hear about your quarantine experience. Today, we're just at a week in full quarantine. It started last Wednesday. This is the very last uh, day before we hit Wednesday. Uh, can you tell us where you're locked in, if you're locked in with anybody, and what your average day is like now? I 
live by myself with a cat. I've been locked down for a while, except I did go for a hike Sunday at Griffith Park and was appalled by people's behavior. No one taking social distancing seriously. Saw a group of boxing classes, full contact. And I'm like, oh, wow. okay. Oh, yeah. Just terrible stuff. Um, so my day can ends with too much drinking, unfortunately, and then watching something and then wake up and I'm working out twice a day in my apartment, um, trying to be as mentally healthy as possible during this time. I want, I want to talk about two things that you mentioned. One is the, the hiking. So uh, I live uh, on the north side of Los Angeles in Glendale, and we're right here at the base of the Angeles National Forest. We've been hiking every day. Today will be the first day we don't go on a hike. We're on hikes with nobody else. Right. No one is on these hikes. But when we tell people we're hiking, the vision they get in their head is that we are what you're saying Griffith Park is like. And I haven't right. seen that. And it's not like we were going out of our way to find crazy hikes. Those are just the easiest hikes for us to get to. And I kind of thought Runyon Canyon or something like that would be crazy. So we avoided it. Right. I haven't seen that side of people just ignoring it. So it's interesting. And, and that, that's obviously what brought down this lockdown. But Sunday, judged. Griffith was like the 4th of July. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I cannot believe I can't it. believe the full contact boxing. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing I want to bring up is the they say, I mean, obviously the joke, you're ending each day drinking too much. But uh, I don't drink that much. And I got to be honest, the first couple of days, I thought about drinking all the time. I would just walk downstairs and I'd be like, there's the fridge. I should probably just grab a beer. It doesn't matter. It's 11. I'm never going to leave the house today. So why not drink a beer right now? Oh, well, some people think it's vacation time that it's okay to drink during the day. Like you're at the airport flying at 9 a.m. to Vegas. And I'm not doing that. I wait till it's night. And to make myself feel better. I'm actually doing FaceTiming with someone each night to have a cocktail. Oh, that's really nice. That's really nice. So it's being a little social. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird experience being here with all this. I And I kind of applaud your workout ethic. Uh, a couple of months, uh, I guess about a month ago, Jade and I bought a treadmill. So we've been trying to run on that. We do have our daughter, Augustine, at home. So we can't do all the fitness, but we're definitely eating healthy. I'm trying to use this as an opportunity to focus on getting things started that I wanted to get started, eating healthier, cooking more at home, broadening my cooking array and doing sit-ups, push-ups and running, that sort of stuff that I can do at home. And so totally. And with YouTube, there are endless workouts of high caliber, like amazing quality workouts by professionals. Have you been using a lot of those? I have. Do you want some pointers? Yeah, you can send me a list. I'd love that. Okay, I'll send you a list. Chris Hemsworth just made his... I guess he has an online fitness thing and he's made that free for three months. So I was going to check that out. Oh, okay. So again, right before we get in the list, uh, going back to entertainment, the biggest news I'd say that I haven't talked about with anyone yet is the closing of all the movie theaters. What do you think about that? I know that you had the AMC pass for a while and you gave that up. Do you think being away from movies and if movies start getting sent to home that you're going to be going back to the movie theater or do you think you're going to be more selective about when you go to the movie theater after the quarantine's over so for me movies have really changed in the last several years back to your point about like hbo the things i'm interested in seeing are now typically television our shows streaming shows they're not the movies that are in theaters and prior to this 
like I look to go to the movies and I didn't even recognize any of the movies. They're only in the theater for such a short time. And they're so, it's so incredibly expensive to go to the movies. I, th I think they're going to have a hard time coming back. I think people, once they get comfortable being at home, they're going to go out to dinner. But I don't know if people are going to rush back to the theaters. I really love the movie experience. I love going to the theater. Mm -hmm. I agree. It is expensive. I think what's going to be weirder is the first time going back to a movie theater and sitting down in a seat that you know after the quarantine has not been wiped down the way it was in the weeks leading up to the quarantine. I think that's going to be that's going to that's going to dampen my spirit. You know, the the last day, last Tuesday night, uh, right before the quarantine came into effect, I had a ticket to go see The Hunt at AMC, mm -hmm. and I was in my car on the way, and I turned around and I was like. I this movie's fine. It's going to be fine. I'm not that excited about it. And I'm really not excited about the idea of sitting in a weird place like this. And so I am going to rent it on Amazon, though. And I think if that is an option moving forward, I'll really enjoy that. I'll really enjoy the movies coming out and making a day night. Let me ask you this. What's the last movie you were excited to see in the theater that lived up to expectations? Oh, that's easy. Uh, 1917. But I screwed it up because we went to go see that as a double feature. We went to go see Bombshell and then 1917 right after that. And so by the time I got to 1917, especially by the end, I've been sitting in the theater for like five hours. And so I was kind of burnt out. That's the worst decision I've ever heard in my life. Well, when you have kids, you only have so many days out, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, Aaron, we're going to get into your list. Is there any ranking number that you would like to change? Don't tell me what you'd like to what, what you'd like to change it to, but is there one that you have in mind that you want to change before we get into this? I would like to replace one. All right. So when we get to that, you're going to have to introduce it to me cuz it's completely unknown to me. Um and we will launch into it. So let but since it's number 1, we'll launch through your first four and then we'll get to number 1. I'm excited to see what you're going to going to replace it with. All right. So this is Aaron Pont's list of the top five things to stream during this quarantine. Coming in at number five is a classic, Goodfellas, which is currently streamable on Netflix and has a discounted price tag on Amazon Prime. It was originally released in 1990. It's widely considered Martin Scorsese's best mobster film. It's based on the life of Harry Hill, a mobster associated with Lucchese family, who is played in the movie by Ray Liotta. This, at the time, was the most expensive Scorsese film, which to me says a lot since it comes after Raging Bull and after Taxi Driver. But even as Scorsese's most expensive film, it's only a medium budget by the standards of other films that were coming out uh, alongside it. So Aaron, was this pre or post uh, pandemic for you? Well, this is, I saw it nine times in the theater. So this was so quite a bit earlier. <laughs> But that's when movies were in the theater for over a year. <laughs> um, so, and I'm aging myself there. But I don't think I've seen this movie in probably t 10 years. Without having seen it in 10 years, can you give us the entire film in just two to three sentences? A synopsis of the film is an Irish kid who grew up in an Italian neighborhood in New York, wanted to be a gangster his whole life, and climbed the highest levels of organized crime without becoming a made man and then ended up of course the the story only ends two ways prison or death and he went to prison 
I think Ray Liotta's depiction of especially the end when he's just frantic trying to get away from the cops. Um, that's one of the finest acting moments, I think, that that Scorsese has been able to capture on film. He's great. And I love the story at the beginning with the kid that plays Ray Liotta when he's talking about how glorious it is to be a mobster. And he's like, that's what you people and the police don't understand is we protect people who can't go to the police for protection. And of course, you know, it opens with how wonderful organized crime is. And then immediately they're killing, stabbing the guy in the <laughs> trunk to death. So you're like, ah, that doesn't look that fantastic to me. So what, what made you originally go see this film? If you can remember all the way back, uh, almost well, 30 years ago, what, what, was, what was it that attracted you to this film? It was my senior year of high school. My dad was like, I want to see this movie. Scorsese. And then I heard Joe Pesci was in it. And I took that to mean Joe Pescopo from Saturday Night Live, <laughs> which doesn't matter at all. But I, I, at that time, would just see anything with De Niro. And I grew up a cinephile. So I went to every movie. I saw everything. So this was just on the list. And I didn't know how wonderful it would be. Goodfellas has so much going for it. It's got so much cinematic history tied into it. The, the cast is packed. It's amazing. I would say it's definitely worth the watch, especially if you're trying to decide if you're going to watch any of Martin Scorsese's latest films, which just don't stack up to what he was doing earlier in his career. Mm. Well, The Irishman was a miniseries. Just no one at Netflix could make him do that. Mm-hmm. And I think if it was seven episodes, you would have been like, oh, that was really good. I don't know. All right. So launching in. Uh, so Goodfellas at number five. Number four, another uh, pretty gritty, violent film, mm -hmm. but definitely more of an independent vibe than Goodfellas. Totally. Blue Ruin, which is, which is currently available to stream on Netflix. It came out in 2013. It was directed and written by Jeremy Solner. I think that's how you pronounce it. I, that's how I would pronounce it. It was literally planned as a last hurrah by the director and the star. They'd been making movies for a while, their entire life. All they wanted to do was uh, make movies as a living. They thought that was not going to be possible. And so they made this movie as like their final thing. It kind of blew up in the festival circuit and it got a huge run uh, in like the indie critic circle and became one of the biggest critical hits of 2013. For you, 20, this came out in 2013. Was this pre or post pandemic watch? I had seen it once before, but remembered very little about it, except I remembered that there was a magnificent gunshot scene, but I couldn't really remember what it, what it was. And that's primarily why I rewatched it to see that scene. And did it live up to what you remembered? It it did. It did. Have you seen this? Yeah, I've definitely seen this. I saw it. Okay. I got really excited when it came out in 2013, but then I didn't see it till it came to streaming, but I think that was only in 2014 or something. So it's it's been a while. Do you remember the shot I'm talking about? I, I know exactly the shot you're talking about. It's Well, I'd say there's a lot of stuff in it, especially when I found out that this was their last hurrah, that they didn't think they were going to make it. There's a lot of technique and a lot of, uh, confidence throughout the film. It doesn't feel like uh -huh. people that are like, oh, I give up, I'm not going to be able to make movies. It feels like people who are no, dedicated it, in the process. Absolutely. And I never got that at all. And it was, I've been watching a ton of films. So I've watched a lot this week. 
or the last two weeks of just things that I've wanted to rewatch. How this is shot stands up against PTA, Scorsese. It's really well shot on a budget. Mm -hmm. Have you, so uh, have you seen what the director calls the sequel or the follow-up to this, The Green Room? I have, which I, I just remember I did not like it as much as true a uh, blue ruin yeah the, the thing to me is this movie stands out as a unique way of telling the story and a unique story whereas the green room feels more like something that came out of the zeitgeist of the time it's it's a unique film uh-huh. and it's definitely has an indie feel but it, it doesn't have the the kind of pop that blue ruin has that it just feels like where did this movie come from how did they come up with this this is original And the thing for me, you know, he's, we don't know what his character was, Dwight, before the murder of his parents, who that guy was. So you just see essentially a homeless person, somewhat weak, is a character. And then to pull off some real violence and then become a protector and then, you know, gangster and handling, you know, getting shot with an arrow himself it's a real arc he goes on and it's told really well yeah you know sometimes when movies get too much critical acclaim it's hard for me to click on them i'm thinking of movies like hidden figures that i still haven't seen because it feels at some point that i should be sitting down and like studying these or or that it's going to be very uh academic to watch it uh-huh. this does not does not feel like this this is a tightly wound movie that plays out pretty quickly there's not a lot of fat to cut out of it well it's only 90 minutes and it's over like the second you sit down and it's interesting now i kind of judge how good something is is if i check my phone during it i didn't even have time to grab my phone so moving from blue ruin into number three uh i've seen goodfellas seen blue ruin i have not seen your pick for number three which is formula one drive to survive it is a two season series on netflix the first season came out in 2019, at the, and the second season came out just at the end of February here. It was produced by Documentary Award-winning uh, alumni James Gay Reese, who began his, the, I'd say, began the golden section of his career with Exit Through the Gift Shop. He also produced Amy and a number of other uh, documentaries in that vein. He just produced an Oasis documentary. It's interesting because this show grew. During the first season, many of the teams that are represented in the show uh, didn't want to participate. So they, so they had a really limited cast in the second season, every formula one team uh, signed on. And so they had a lot more access and each episode is only 30 minutes. So it's super digestible. Like I said, I have not seen this show. So Aaron, will you tell me real quick before we get into the show, was this pre or post pandemic for you? I had seen season one prior season two post. And how fast did you get through season two having watched it? during the pandemic honestly or should i lie no just be honest. Uh, honestly like a day because they're half hour so sit down <laughs> here for half an hour sit what down would there you, for what half would an you hour. have lied what would well you know if this were normal times i'd tell somebody it took me two weeks to watch or something <laughs> um so I, I binged it pretty quickly it came on my radar because a friend of mine was like you know are you you're a sports fan, do you follow Formula One? And I'm like, no. And he's like, I've really gotten into it. It's amazing. There's this documentary you should check out, this docu-series. 
And I knew nothing about Formula One other than their athlete, their drivers are the highest paid athletes in the world. And it was fascinating just from the nuts and bolts perspective of how they build a car, the amount of money that it takes, the team, the crew team who like change the tires on the car racing for lack of a better description are essentially rocket scientists and professional athletes. So they can build the car and then change the tire in two seconds. Wow. And then the quality of the car and then the driver. And then sometimes the driver's amazing and the car's a piece of shit. And then sometimes the car is amazing and the driver's not performing well. And it's super interesting. And then how cocky all the drivers are because they're on death's door every time they get behind the wheel. How, so how does the show cover this? They get into the honesty of, in the first season, the money disparity. That Mercedes and Ferrari spend $500 million a year and like a little British company named Williams only spends about $100 million. Well, then, you know, there's no way for them to compete. And they're actually coming out after next season with a salary cap. So each team will have the same amount. Hmm. Um, then they cover the drivers. And it's how funny that that's a plot. Wait, real quick. Hmm? It's funny that that's a plot line for season one, because uh, those are the two teams specifically brought up in every article that they did not want to be a part of season one, but they did want to be a part of season two. And that could be that. And also they have the most to lose. They have the biggest fan bases already. They didn't need this in season one. And then they saw how great the publicity was. And they're like, okay, we'll do it. It's amazing how competitive the driving is and then how quickly a team will get rid of a driver. So one may be traded or free agency essentially leave on their own accord and go to another team or they get sent to like the minor leagues of driving. They just get kicked out of Formula One and somebody else comes up. So it's really brutal in that way. And this, this show does a really good job of examining the, the personal qualities of the people as they go through this? Really great. With seeing their families, seeing a lot of what they do. I don't think they're trying to narrate a story that a lot of, a lot of docuseries do, that they're really just showing you what happened. And then, you know, I didn't really realize the car itself is essentially a space shuttle with the technology that's in it. And how they build the car is absolutely crazy. And then the fact that the car can crash in the middle of a race and they can totally rebuild the car in a, a lot of times and it finishes the race. It's unbelievable. Your passion for talking about Formula One has sold me on this show. Okay, so number three, Formula One. Obviously, Aaron loves everything to do about Formula One Drive to Survive. Number two, uh, way more mainstream, a super popular show, but you depict you picked out one season of it, True Detective Season 1 on HBO, HBO Now, and available to buy on all the platforms. Season 1 came out in 2014. Season 2 came out in 2015. Then there was a four-year gap between Season 2 and Season 3, which came out in 2019. It was created by, again, this name, I'm going to get as close as I can, uh, Nick Pizzolatto. He was originally a fiction writer, and True Detective was originally headed to be a novel. Then he decided to change his mind and write it as a television show. 
At the time, he wasn't a complete stranger to television. He'd written two episodes of the first season of The Killing, which is a previous recommend from another guest. But he had a disagreement with the showrunner. He wanted to have complete control over the way the story went. Uh, as the writer, he thought he had the right to tell the story he wanted not to be beholden to somebody else. So it's interesting that season one of True Detective was his first major foray into writing television, and he was the producer, showrunner, and the sole writer. He didn't bring a writer on board to True Detective until season two. The fact that Pizzolatto wanted to have all this control, the one thing that he couldn't get his control around was the nude scenes. The nude scenes were only inserted in the show at the request of the network. He didn't want them in the show originally. Now, real quick, Aaron, was this a pre or post pandemic watch for you? Both. Again, this was actually my third episodic run of watching True Detective season one. Wow. All right. So you're a big fan. So what made you click on it the first time? Well, the first time, every, you know, HBO did a wonderful job marketing it. And then, you know, at that time, not to, you know, knock i'm not knocking anyone here but at that time a lot of people thought matthew mcconaughey like good looking but you know is he the best actor ever i don't know and then he does this in the first episode you're just like whoa and i thought i'm sure what drew me in the first time was the the acting that they both essentially play almost two different characters because of the time difference and then I thought how beautifully it was shot. And also even there was an interview shot where the two African-American cops interviewing them, they switch left and right. And I'm like, oh, that, that's a mess up. They were just on the other side. And then I'm like, oh, no. And it's revealing the time change. And it was such an interesting way to reveal that. And throughout each episode, there's like three or four shots where you're like, that's, I've not seen that. That's really smart shot. And then the story's brilliant and the acting's brilliant. And I think the nudity really works and is important because both of those women, I, I'm talking about, and I wrote their names down, Alexandria Daddario and Lily Simmons. They both use their sexuality to get exactly what they want. And then just about sex, the scene with Matthew McConaughey and uh, Michelle Monaghan's character when they hook up is like the most uncomfortable I think I've ever been in my life. That's interesting. That shows like the power of telling story while uh, continuing to use every element of a production to tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, sometimes you get to these scenes. Martin Scorsese is a good example. One of his early films, I think it was Boxcar Bertha, but I'm not sure. One of his early, one of his really early films, the studio only released it because he agreed to put a sex scene in there. So he just cut the film in the middle. They went out, shot a sex scene, and just dropped it in because that's what they wanted. And so it has no bearing on the film because mm-hmm. the story was done entirely before. So it's interesting to continue telling the story through every type of activity that's depicted within the production to your point the nudity nudity that was put in that tells woody harrelson's whole story because one girl is the first time he's caught cheating on his wife and the second girl is 
the second time he's caught cheating, which eventually ends the marriage. So it, they're, they're both really important to telling Woody Harrelson's character's story. So you suggested on your list season one. Would you also suggest season two or three or just season one? First of all, season one, I thought, was like the best eight episodes of television ever. So I went into season two not expecting it to be anywhere near that. And it, it wasn't. And season three, I, I thought was good. And, but I, I thought that Steven Dorff was just amazing and stole the show. So mm -hmm. to watch an actor, I thought he was incredible. But season one, I thought was really great. Yeah, I agree. I think season one is really something special. But season mm -hmm. two, missed the boat. Season three was fine. But season one is really something special. And if, if, uh, if you haven't watched it yet, you really check that out. Now, going into your number one pick, you had The Outsider right now, which is a previous pick by another guest. It's a huge time for Stephen King. A lot of people say this show's great. It's definitely in line with... True Detective and Goodfellas in the it's been compared to actually True Detective a lot as its crime roots, but you want to substitute that. So what is your pick for the number one thing to stream? The best thing I think you could binge right now is Chernobyl, which is six episodes on HBO. I remember when Chernobyl happened. And my father was so mad because he's like, these Russian people are all going to die. And their government is just going to cover it all up. So watching this show, I just had like moments of nostalgia the whole time watching. Mm -hmm. It's super hard to tell a story when you know the ending, right? Yeah. And they do such a beautiful job of showing everyone's role, especially under communism, what their role was and how the film starts with cover up do it for the state, for the people, blah, 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 with a couple scientists saying, hey, we got a real problem, which is very similar to what's going on right now. <laughs> um, the scientists convincing them they had the problem and then continually lying actually got them caught because they said everything's fine, but then neighboring countries were getting radiation and behaving appropriately or reacting appropriately. And it, it tells an incredible story of from everyone's perspective of how it happened. I think the the medium they decided to tell the story in is one of the strongest pieces. It's not a series, it's a limited like a limited run, so like you said it's six episodes. Uh it's not a movie which would really focused on just the event. To me, it's the way that you can dig into the the broader character story uh that and tell the the human elements from so many different angles that that really made this entire uh series so captivating for me one of the most interesting moments that i i always think of first has nothing to do with the direct chernobyl it's the miners that are sent in uh to dig the relief tunnel that's going to go underneath it uh how they get drug in from a mining town they're the third or fourth generation miners. And then before the end of the film, they're mining naked because it's so hot and they know they're all going to die anyway. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a storyline that would have been skipped in so many different ways of telling the story, but it became integral to my experience because 
it's so human and you really want to fight for these guys. Uh-huh. But like you said, you know, from the beginning, the government's just going to screw them over, which makes it harder and honestly gives me more compassion for all the characters throughout it. Um, yeah, this is this this was a series that that kind of like I said about hidden figures. I wasn't sure if I was going to enjoy it or if I was going to be analyzing it the whole time, but it's impossible not to enjoy this series. Yeah, really great. The scene with the miners is unbelievable. Everyone was such a good actor. Now, the accents weren't perfect, you know, and meaning Russian. And I listened to a podcast uh, with the creator of the show, and he said when they started seeing people, seeing actors, that even though they were seeing great actors, that the audition was more about the accent than the work. Interesting. And he was like, forget the accent. Just act. And I kind of wish I had known that prior to watching because like the first episode, I'm like, that's not a Russian accent. (laughs) And you know me, so you know that's going to bother me. But once I got over (laughs) that, like the storytelling is so great. And the scene with the KGB officer or the head of the KGB where he's like, it's just about accountability, you know? The purpose of the KGB is to make everyone accountable, including me. And I, I thought that was just super interesting. And then the tragedy of, you know, the how they showed the explosion, first of all, was amazing. Through the window, mm-hmm. and you didn't hear it. You saw mm-hmm. it and felt the vi- vibration. Um, incredible. Um, and then, the, you know, people didn't know. And they're out there with their kids watching, thinking everything's fine. Very similar to me hiking at Griffith Park yesterday, Sunday. <laughs> so that is Chernobyl. It is HBO. I believe it came out in 2019, right? It came out in early yes. 2019? Mid-2019? Yes. Uh, it's still available on HBO Go, and you can, of course, buy it on Amazon Prime or Apple. So, uh, Aaron, let me go through your list real quick, just so uh, we can all remember. Um, from 5 to 1, Goodfellas, Blue Ruin, Formula One, Drive to Survive, True Detective Season 1, and substituting for the outsider is chernobyl now thank you so much for sending your list of five picks and in response i'd like to suggest something to you uh, something i think fits in with these lines i believe i've talked to you about this movie documentary before uh but i still don't think you've ever seen it it's american boy the profile of stephen prince it's a documentary from 1979 it was directed by martin scorsese it's basically one guy just telling stories about his life He's had this ridiculous life, and a lot of the stories in this documentary this guy tells became inspiration for Pulp Fiction. Uh, the needle going into Uma Thurman's chest is from this guy's story. Like he was a, he's best known, I guess, for being the gun shop owner. I think in um, Taxi Driver, but he's been a gas station attendant out in Barstow. He's he, I think he's comes from wealth and just kind of bummed his way around and ended up in a lot of really weird situations. So it's a super captivating documentary. It's available to stream on YouTube uh, for free. So American Boy, a profile of Stephen Prince. And there's a sequel, which I haven't seen, called American Prince. It's a 30-year follow-up. It came out in uh, 2009. It's not by Martin Scorsese. It's by just some other guy. Um, but it, I haven't watched that, but it's, it's, each of them are about an hour. So definitely worth checking out the American boy, especially the stories this guy tells are crazy. And just uh, real side note for the audience, Aaron and I worked on a, uh, a film about, uh, drug rehab 
And in it, Aaron cast an actual uh, addict who was coming back from having been a heroin addict. And when he told his stories, the way he just told his life stories was more captivating than anything else that was happening by any actor on set. And that's kind of how this film is. It's just 50 minutes of this guy telling stories. You're like, that's insane. Oh my, that's crazy. So definitely check that out. American Boy, a a portrait of Stephen Prince. Wow. So I have not, I don't think you ever told me about that. I really tried when I, when I saw your list and like knowing that you watch so many movies, like I said, this list is like a very thick list. I really tried to find something that uh, I think might be special. So you got to watch it. I think you'll, I think you'll really like it. Can I add one more for only industry people? Okay. There's a movie called film worker. It's about a famous actor, or not a famous actor, a working actor who eventually uh, befriended by working with him, Stanley Kubrick. And he was like, I want to learn really how to make films. So he essentially became Stanley Kubrick's guy. And he did this, he was in charge of the Stanley Kubrick exhibit that was in Los Angeles. He it, it, fascinating. Sad, but fascinating. You mentioned that to me before, and I'm glad you mentioned it again because I'd forgotten the title. So, film worker. All right, uh, hard number six. Let's say film worker. Film worker, and I believe that's on Netflix or YouTube, but I think Netflix. All right. Well, uh, again, thank you so much, uh, Aaron, for calling in today. Cornstream this week was produced by me, Bobby Christian. A special thanks to Aaron Pont for spending time and talking about all things, I guess, Scorsese to Formula One. Uh, we will be back in a couple days with another episode of Corn Stream. Talk to you then. 